Hi everyone. Valentine here. Sending you all so much love as this current pandemic continues. I wish you all safety and peace. Today's episode is a blast to listen to. I thought so at least. We asked Holly Whitaker to come on for an interview. She's the creator of Tempest Sobriety and author of Quit Like a Woman. She also created the blog Hip Sobriety, which is how I originally found it. Uh, I discovered Tempest and Hip Sobriety after I had a slip in my own recovery. I didn't expect that an online recovery program would have such incredibly deep wisdom and become my main source of modern recovery wisdom. Uh, Tempest helped me find my blind spots and helped me achieve long-term sobriety. And so now I have my own personalized holistic recovery program and I feel more emotionally stable than I did before. So I highly recommend checking out Tempest if you haven't already. Uh, And if you would like to hear more of my story, I was recently featured on the Sober Company podcast, sobercompanypodcast.com. It's a fabulous podcast that explores modern sobriety, and it has the best hosts ever, Lacey and Nick. So yeah, so check it out, sobercompanypodcast.com. And introducing Vimala Sara Mason-John, Buddhist Recovery Network president and author of Eight Step Recovery and Detox Your Heart, interviewing Holly Whitaker, founder of Tempest and author of Quit Like a Woman. Um, It's so great to be with you, Holly. I mean, this conversation I've wanted to have with you over the past couple of years, you as one of the pioneers of just um, developing a recovery program specifically for for women I know it includes all genders but definitely the emphasis is around is is around women but before Mm -hmm. we get into that just you know we're we're talking during the pandemic how has the lockdown been for you um I think like all things um that are you know deeply unfortunate um and tragic on so many levels Uh, I I feel like it has been personally, um, personally, I've been extremely privileged in it. Um, I have a safe place to live. Um, I have a job. I have, um, I mean, I, I have everything I could want. And so I think there's that piece of it, which is just acknowledging how good I have it. Um, and I also think personally what this has drawn out for me, it, it has felt like a return. I celebrated seven years of sobriety in this time. And it has felt like a return to things I needed to remember. Mm -hmm. Um, and a very, I, I've gone deeper within. And I think this, this whole journey is not just the recovery journey, but just the journey back to ourselves. And I think that this has been an incredible opportunity for me to go deeper and to work on myself in ways that I felt like I didn't have time to, you know, just Mm -hmm. a few months ago. So it's been good for better. That sounds, that sounds really inspiring. And I really appreciate when you speak about that privilege of being having to be in a safe home, because so often we've heard that this pandemic is an equalizer and it most definitely isn't. <laughs> no. Like, no, it is yeah. not. Yeah. We are not all suffering the same. I think what's interesting yeah. about it, though, is it is it is definitely a it's a veil lifter. And I think that there is, if you're paying attention, you're seeing what has, you know, what is, what, what lays just below the surface in terms of, and, and just how fragile everything is and how fragile some people's existence is. And so I don't think it's an equalizer in any measure. I don't think everyone's suffering is relative. I think that some people are really, really taking it from this and getting a hit from this. And um, I think that we have to be mindful of that consistently. Definitely. I mean, the way I see it is that there we, we've all been in the storm, but we're in different boats. That's right. And I want to let's turn to the boat of, of addiction. So Tempest, tell me what Tempest is. 
So Tempest is something that I started when I personally recovered from addiction and felt that the systems in place um, were, I didn't want to use them. It wasn't even that I felt anything about them. I just absolutely had no desire to go the traditional route of recovery, which is, you know, presented to me back then as rehab or as a 12 step fellowship. And I, I created a pathway to recovery um, that was extremely personally successful um, and defied the odds, right? I think there were in so many different ways, it defied the odds of how happy I was to not drink. The, the, it defied this like belief around alcohol being all important. Um, I think that just in terms of time and also just improvement of quality of life across so many different, you know, so many different measurements. And then the also just, uh, how quickly I was able to give up things that had haunted me forever from the eating disorder. It started with alcohol, but I had an eating disorder. I was, I was severely addicted to pot. I was, you know, I I used it all day, every day for years. Um, Cigarettes, uh, drama, I mean like all these things that I just never, I felt I would never shake Um, in a very short period of time. I had a very extreme uh, recovery and I worked in healthcare, in American healthcare, and I think there was just, and, and I didn't use American healthcare. And American healthcare couldn't have helped me if they had tried. And so I had this experience where I did something it was very effective. It was very, it in many ways was was counterintuitive to what we've been told about recovery and addiction. And I did it with this lens on why, you know, how how did my insurance card not work on that? How do I live in you know this country that has supposedly the best healthcare in the entire world and it did not affix me? Um, and so that led me to create uh, really a blog and, and then eventually a program. Uh, and so today Tempest is a program that is designed to help people create personal pathways to recovery. It's steeped in personal agency. It believes the people that suffer from addiction have a choice of how they heal. Um, and that they they deserve dignity and agency and power, and it also is is focused on really, I think, turning upside down some of these long held beliefs around recovery that I think pe- keep people out of it. What are some of the tools that people can expect that they will get from Tempest? Yeah, I mean, we offer both evidence based um, recovery uh, uh, evidence based methods, so. Um, you know, we work specifically on habit and behavioral change. Um, there's elements of CBT. Um, we teach meditation. We teach a lot of like self-management tools, um, EFT. Um, we even just teach people how to build toolboxes, right? Like how to um, start to gather different tools to help them as either healthy coping mechanisms or to break the cycle of addiction or to work with, you know, the root issues of addiction. Um, so that can be anything from just um, understanding how trauma works to um, developing practices to manage energy, um, to learning breathing techniques, to learning how to have difficult conversations or to work with codependent behaviors and tendencies. I mean, it goes on and on and on because addiction is so um, encompassing, right? Our whole lives are affected by addiction. And so our recovery has to really embrace our whole lives. Welcome people expect when they go to the Tempest School? What does that look like? Yeah, we have three different levels of membership that we offer. The first is just giving them access to community and support groups. Uh, The second is more um, self-guided, meaning uh, they are mostly moving themselves through uh, content to help them to conceptualize and create a framework for recovery. So that might be teaching you about... um, uh, that might be teaching you about nutrition specific to addiction recovery, or we this month are focusing on anxiety and really going deep into like the levels of anxiety and how that shows up in our recovery. It might be even just social anxiety or um, like the anxiety we feel in response to COVID. Um, so there's a lot of um, the, the second tier is really like giving people access to content, community, online community, and also uh, some support groups. And then we have a complete and intensive model, which gives individuals access to more uh, support groups, group, group coaching sessions, um, as well as uh, across uh, across two memberships, we, we give folks the option to additionally purchase uh, one-on-one 
accountability coaching from our own account, uh, trained accountability coaches. And then we also are starting to pilot uh, therapy and access to therapy and Tempest trained therapists. Thank you. Yeah. And um, we know that within the recovery movement that meetings have been really important to people's recovery. It's been really valuable. What what does a Tempest offer in terms of meetings for people? Yeah, I mean, we have different size support groups. And so we have some larger support groups that are based in, um, you know, similar to an AA model where there might be sharing. Uh, we also have smaller group processing support groups. Um, we have affinity groups as well. So I think that's really important to note. Uh, we have within our, our own version of Facebook, we have our own social um, we have BIPOC groups. Uh, we also have LGBTQ plus groups. Um, we have groups for folks that are over 55, uh, parenting groups, so experience and identity-based groups. Um, and then there's just all form of meeting types. Um, down to, we have a, we've been piloting a maker's circle where folks just show up and work on crafts so they don't have to necessarily just dig deep. They can just chill with each other. Um, while they're creating or working on an art project, um, there's just a, there's a, a pretty dynamic offering of, of ways to bring people together and community, especially, you know, in digital community, um, and, and creating those connections that are harder to get and come by right now. And, you know, in the state of COVID. One of the things that I find unique to Tempest is this, this, this slant towards, uh, I don't say women, but a, a feminist approach. And why why do we need a feminist approach to recovery? Yeah, and I, I think it's so interesting because you and I haven't even, we haven't talked about who you and I met. Um, but I think uh, I met you almost three years ago. And I think the, it was, I went to a Zen center in San Francisco and I heard you speak. And there was just like, it is, I forget sometimes because I'm so immersed in it now, but hearing you speak and the way that you spoke in that, you know, the, the, the power that you held in that conversation in that room and the way you were daring to talk about recovery. And it was, I think it was just such a rare thing. Um, and I think that for, for me, I didn't intend to create feminist recovery. I would never have even identified myself as a feminist um, at the start of all of this. I just had a strong reaction to, um, I, I was going to be made sick if I went down the route of taking on a label of forcing myself into a structure that I didn't want to be part of, of silencing myself, of shutting up and listening, of doing all these things that I felt had actually, I felt like for me, my healing started as this sense of intuition building. The first time that I started to develop a sense of trust with myself and listen to myself, you know, despite what other people said or despite what, um, sorry, um, despite, sorry, my call, um, despite I started to develop this sense of, of self trust. And I think that was in the face of a lot of dissent around, you know, I wasn't going the traditional way, 12-step recovery or going to rehab. And um, I was just, my family didn't support it. Um, people didn't understand it. I was questioned constantly on whether I was fooling myself or if I was getting real help. There was constantly this this thing thrown at me of, are you, are you sure you're getting real help? And almost um, a resistance to uh, this belief that I could trust in myself. Um, so I think that for me, it was not intentionally developed as feminist. It's just, that was, I think that was just my internalized response <laughs> to what had made, I, I was able to draw on what had made me sick, which was not listening to myself, not trusting to myself, not being supported in my decisions, not, um, not being, you know, allowed to, to do those things. Um, people being scared for me, um, you know, all of this stuff. And like my healing was through saying enough and, and that was terrifying and that was hard. And I did it by myself because of that, because I had, because I was not doing what other people wanted me to do. I was on my own. And I think, um, 
Tempest grew out of this. I was able to patch together later by being drawn into feminism and feminist thinkers that, 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 that paved the way for me to make sense of why I might have a reaction like that. Um, and for me, I was able to draw conclusions that, oh, I'm sick because of this. I'm sick because of, of being gaslit. I'm sick of, I'm sick from, from not being believed. I'm sick from not being able to trust myself. I'm sick from conformity. Um, and so because of these things, I had this aha, which that then led me into understanding, you know, where does recovery come from as we know it? And who wrote the rules of recovery as we know them? And why are people so afraid of breaking those rules? Mm-hmm. And why are we so tied to them? Why are people afraid of me not using the label alcoholic? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and that fear comes in around like, like holding up, a, a, I mean, to me, it's just that fear comes in around holding up traditional oppressive structures. And I think I, I was able to tie into, you know, AA was created in the 30s and it was created out of a Christian fundamental um, um, philosophy. It was an outgrowth of a fundamental organization. And yes, and it was also created to help white men who had money and who had power. And the rules that were created were meant to break down that power. And when you take those same rules and you start to give them to people who have never had power, um, you're force feeding them a lot of the same things that made them sick. I think it's freeing for men to adopt, you know, what's been imposed on the feminine or the female. Um, and I think it's, it's imprisonment when you force women to follow the rules, to shut up and listen, to not have a voice, to follow the group, to trust other people. So it's a very long way of saying, and, and I have to be clear, I don't have anything against the area. I think it's a wonderful organization. And I think fellowships can be as different as the day is long. I have, you know, for me, the commentary is always on, it doesn't matter if you go to AA or not, that philosophy governs recovery. And it co- it governs the way people inside and outside of the, of the recovery community conceptualize other people who struggle with addiction. Sure. And within that, I just really want to name Lois uh, Wilson, who, you know, if we think about the first woman or female pioneer of recovery would have been Lois Wilson creating Al-Anon. But what I want to um, come to, because, you know, we've got listeners hearing and I want listeners to know, although we've mentioned the word feminist, that Tempest definitely is not turf which is trans-exclusionary radical feminists, if people don't know what TERF is. No. What's really interesting about, or to me, what's unique about Tem- Tempest is actually its inclusivity. So could you tell us who who is Tempest for? I built it as a means to, first of all, create a different narrative around alcohol, but also around recovery. And I built it as a medium, not as a replacement of AA, um, nor as a replacement of rehab, but as a middle ground so that individuals could come to a space where they receive um, a a supportive community healing path, and then also different uh, different support structures. And so, it is you know we're a for profit organization, and we primarily right now serve a community of folks that can pay for it, even though we have sliding scale. And so, I think it's really important to state this because I think we the I you know for me the goal is always on minding the healthcare gap. I think I started this because. I worked in healthcare. I saw how people healed and I saw what made them sick and what kept them sick. And so the entry point for me in creating this was how do I start to include holistically a whole human into their recovery? And, and a simple like analogy is if you take somebody, you throw them into, and they, they have diabetes, but they're also caretakers with credit card debt um, that work three jobs. Uh, they're never going to heal. And so for me, you know, the, the, the entire person, no matter what it is that they're healing from, has to be brought into the equation. We are focused on creating inclusive structures, but we're also really realistic about what we actually have to do internally in order to be able to serve and provide culturally competent and identity-based recovery uh, frameworks. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just, I think it's, it's not just inclusivity. I think it's also if you're coming to this, how are you seen? And also, how is your identity wrapped up into what your care plan is? And that is an incredibly important part of how people heal. 
Um, so I think it's important to say we are committed to increasing our ability to treat all populations. We are committed especially to dismantling um, uh, oppress- uh, racism and, and other oppressive like white supremacist culture um, within our organization. Um, and then we're also really clear about we're, we're still like, you know, we're still a for-profit entity um, that is figuring itself out and figuring out how do we actually create, um, how do we actually, I think for me, it's always just how do we, how do we do the work instead of just saying that we're this thing? And I think a lot of organizations start out, like, um, aspirational organizations start out, you know, kind of top heavy and saying we are this thing and we stand for this, but they can't actually like back it up. And I think the way that I consistently try and view what we do is we know where we're going and we know our North Star, we know what we believe in, we know what we have to personally do to dismantle the things that uphold a sick society. And also we're going to move through this really thoughtfully about, you know, who, about who we are able to and prepared to serve. Does that make sense? Does that yeah. like align with what your experience has been? That, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, what what's actually uh, popped up in my mind is the model of narrative therapy. And narrative therapy is looking at what's happening in society and the impact on people in society. And that's what you work with. And I think with Tempest is that, because some people will say that Tempest is a, is a political, it, it, it's political. <laughs> But actually, yeah. in, 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 a, in a way, is it is it political or is it really looking at what's happening out there in society? Because the way the addiction movement has um, been moving, it's saying it's not just the biological, it's not just the psychological. It has to be the biopsychosocial plus model. And that right. plus model is including the cultural, is including the spiritual, is including all those other things that have been missing. But I think there are people, some of our listeners will be listening. And the big question is, is Tempest absolute base or is it harm reduction? Mm-hmm. And it's always, always the question. So the yeah. question for you is abstinence or harm reduction? That's such a good question. I want to come back to this one thing. And I think anything inherently paying attention is political. I just do. I think like we say political is a bad thing. I think we are not, we don't do political debates. We're not talking about candidates within our organization. But I think to say that we aren't political means that we aren't brave enough to take a stand and also that we ignore the actual lived realities of humans. And addiction is an outgrowth of our experience of this world. And if it does not take into consideration the experiences that different identities have in this world, then it's missing it. Um, and we're both. We're, ha- we're harm reduction and we're abstinence-based. I think, uh, you know, the the um, the Center for Motivation and Change, do you know who they are out of New York? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard yeah. of them. Yeah. They, they employ all practices to help people get to the relationship that they want. And I think when you, we don't bring people in and say, you know, you're, we don't measure people's worth within days and abstinence. Um, I think that we are consistently celebrating any awareness and change around someone's relationship with an addictive uh, substance or a chemical substance or even a, a behavior. But I would say um, at the same time, I'm also not going to pretend that uh, alcohol is an important and necessary part of, of someone's life. And I think um, I have a lot to say about that, but I think that um, we can be both whatever, whatever it is that makes sense to you and also hold this unquestion, uh, this, this unquestioning belief that um, part of the problem of alcohol addiction, which kills 3.3 million people worldwide, is the confusing message that it's great and fine and perfect um, and that we should be able to use it and have, and, and have no harm come from it. Um, and then, you know, break off specific individuals that, that can't versus overall just saying, you know, cigarettes are pretty bad. Let's maybe like say nobody should be smoking them. Um, and even if like tobacco was used in some sort of indigenous or native practices, right. And the same thing is with alcohol. Cause a lot of people will go to that. Well, there's ceremonial use and sure, fine, but that's not how we're using it. And so I think like to hold this very clear line on you get to decide what is right for you. You have to trust yourself to get yourself to the right answers. And at the same time, we are not going to pretend as an organization that it is, that it is a normal thing to drink the way that we, as uh, especially like an American uh, or North American culture have been programmed to drink. 
Let's thank you for mentioning that because it, it's a great segue into your book, Quit, Quit Like a Woman. And um, one of the things I've really enjoyed is this new voice uh, in the recovery world is just looking at the the placing uh, alcoholism, tobacco within a historical context. And one, mm-hmm. of the things, one of the things that comes up for me is it, it's, again, in narrative therapy, they talk about suicide being institutional murder. And as I read your book, mm-hmm. I was thinking, wow, you know, could we really begin to see that things like alcohol um, and tobacco mm. is, is part of the institutional murder that of governments have created. Of course it is. There's this fascinating book, and I read from anybody. I will read anybody's book, no matter who they are. I find it very interesting to look at different perspectives. And so Thomas Az, very controversial figure, um, you know, was a psychiatrist that basically said there's no such thing as mental illness. Um, so uh, some people really hate him, but he wrote a book called Ceremonial Chemistry, um, and it's just fascinating when you start to look at the like the trajectory of the war on drugs and the way that like that fueled a white supremacist uh, American capitalist agenda in that there was they were going into different countries. And um, there's this one story specific to, I think, Laos, and they brought in American troops and and they got American aid to remove all their poppy plants and all their heroin producing capabilities. So they had this thing happen. And then they celebrated it with corn alcohol. And so when I talk about like alcohol specifically, you're looking at a really white profitable drug. And you're also looking at, uh, if you start looking at the way that the rates of alcohol addiction have increased in countries that don't have historical ceremonial use, so that's India or that's, uh, that's Africa, parts of Africa, um, where there was, you know, like in India, there's ceremonial use of ganja, right? Um, historical use of, of, of different drugs. Uh, drugs are, you know, have a long history <laughs> and, and, and there are different drugs that are, that are associated with different cultures and different regions of the world. And what you see with like the war on drugs is this like eradication of any ceremonial use, um, or any, you know, any other drug use and then the implantation of, 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 you know, white profitable drugs. And so, I look at it in that way of it. it's a tool of oppression and a tool of profit. And then you also just look at somebody quoted something on my, one of my feeds recently that was just like, if you want to look at how, a, you know, how a society operates, look at it's look at its two drugs, you know, and like, or it's, it's, you know, for us, it's alcohol and it's, it's coffee, you know, and we keep people, you know, numbed and we keep them you know, productive. And so I just, I think, and I could go on and on. Like, let me, yeah, I'd like to (laughs) interject with that because the way alcohol has been used against um, black indigenous people of color, we Mm -hmm. know that actually a lot of our lands were stolen because of duping, you know, duping our chiefs, et cetera, getting them drunk so that we could sign this piece of paper. I live here in Canada. And when I go to um, some of the indigenous spaces, it's so interesting. What is the only two shops that are there are the gas stations and the alcohol shop. Yeah. What? And then again, I, I lived and worked out in, in Australia and everybody would say, oh, you know, the, the Aboriginal people have an alcohol issue. Well, Hmm. The only reason why they say they have an issue is because Aboriginal people can't drink in the bars. So they have to drink on the streets. And who introduced alcohol into that culture? So it has been a way of controlling, controlling society, controlling. Yeah. It's also really interesting because I don't know if you're familiar with Bruce Alexander's work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, his, his whole theory is the dislocation theory. And he actually uses where you live as the case study, Vancouver. Yeah. And when you strip people, and there's there's not just the feeding of it as an oppressive tool. There's also, what do you expect people to do when you steal from them their culture and you ask them to assimilate? When you strip them of everything that was meaningful and connective to them, and then you ask them to assimilate into whiteness. And so, yeah, I mean, there's 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 so much layers upon layers but I just I hold the firm line you know alcohol is just we we I it is so surprising to me that we do not collectively pull back the layers on this and you see how enraged we are at big pharma um and you see you know because of of, of oxycodone and 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 other you know like in the heroin opioid epidemic and 
You just don't see that. No one's enraged at big alcohol. No one is enraged at who's profiting and, and why is this an essential, you know, why is this an essential in COVID? You know, things like that. We just don't bat an eye. We just post a picture of a martini on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I just read something just recently about, okay, so there's so many deaths um, happened during the pandemic and you and people are saying, well, you know, the same amount of deaths happened due to drunk driving, but that's different. And they were saying, that, that's different. That's not new. And I'm thinking, how different is it? It's not different. But anyway, I want to come on to let's talk a bit about us and our trajectory, because we do have some um, similarities. And I really want to talk about uh, eating disorder because we know mm. that or disordered eating, really, mm-hmm. right? disordered eating. And we know that many people, um, especially women who have issues with alcohol, have disordered eating. Yeah. And I know that's been part of your experience. As I'm eating a cashew. Um, oh, I don't tell me about cashews because that raw cashews is my addiction. And I, I've relapsed. I've re- I have to confess, I've relapsed. I've, 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 I've stopped yesterday. I was off. Cashews. Okay. I, it's so weird. I've had this bag of cashews for mm-hmm. like a year in this house or whatever. I bought it when I first bought the house and I never opened it until literally today. So I must have had some sort of hit. Um <laughs> I don't like them that much. Um, <laughs> I just ran out of food. So I think uh, the, yeah, I have, I have a, I have a history. My first addiction, I think um, was food addiction. I mean, to me, the first, let me just say it this way. Cause I want to actually say what it is. It's not just addiction. Cause we start to like really clinic, make, make it clinical. I started to leave my body um, through and, and to hate my body and reject my existence in my body through, uh, through dieting and food. That was just it. And I I went from my neighbor, her mom had her own Weight Watchers when she was just a kid. And so I watched my neighbor being put on diets when she was six. Um, and then I, you know, in my own, I, you know, I don't know where, where does this stuff come from? You know, so many different places, but I, I was on diet pills by the time I was 11. And um, yeah, I've just, I, I have had a very long battle with um, anorexia, bulimia, and dieting, and just general hating my body. So, yeah. How did you How did you get to the place of um, letting go of the, of, of the bulimia? I mean, I I say that because bulimia was. I mean, I was diagnosed as a chronic bulimic and was actually at. Well, when I was recording it, I was throwing up over 40 times a day. So God knows how oh many times God. I was throwing yeah. up. You know, my my teeth have crumbled. People might mm-hmm. think I've got good teeth, but they're all caps. What, what? Mm-hmm. I'm like running my mouth, my tongue over my teeth. Same. Mm-hmm. Um, how? Yeah. Did I... <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's really important. I hadn't binged and purged in like seven years. And I did actually like two months ago. Um, or a month, like during this somehow, I just lost, I lost it and I went to it. And I, I say that because I'm not embarrassed about it. And I don't like, I'm real, also really clear on these things of like, I think we're, you know, to put into such black and white context, what, what progress is. Um, so, and also to just acknowledge, you know, for me, I know I'm never going to drink again. Um, I also, you know, plan to never, you know, binge and purge again. Um, but I also think that like there is, um, I think that the, the way that we return to ourselves and the way that we start to take care of ourselves and the way we start to stop harming ourselves is just such a, it's a, it's just so complicated and long. And for me, it just started because my alcohol uh, consumption used to fuel my food consumption. Exactly. So, yeah. So I moved, and when I removed that, I got yeah. down to, I didn't lose it the same way that I used to. And it gave me, it gave me an entry point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, uh, the same for myself. I just realized that actually I would drink the alcohol and then I'd be in the food. And I, it was when I let go of the alcohol that actually something began to change. But then I had to really look at what were my alcohols in the food. Like I'm yeah. somebody, I have to be, I have to be abstinent from sugars. Yeah. 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 I understand. Sugars. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. And I think it's, um, I have a number of, I mean, I have plenty of friends with eating disorders and I know, um, I think like, it's just so interesting how we start to learn ourselves and we start to learn how to navigate what to stay away from. Um, or, you know, in my case, what I have to stay away from is restriction. Um, and so I am such a black and white thinker around this stuff. Um, for me, the food healing came from removing the rules. Um, because I, I, I had anorexia before I had bulimia and That's I was on, um, yeah, I think it's such a typical yeah. history. Yeah. <laughs> I was a failed anorexic. I, was, I know, I know I tried really hard, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it, I couldn't pull it off. Um, and it's just so interesting. It's just, I, I, you know, I, I think every bulimic I have ever met or every person that has struggled with bulimia, I, I think they have that same anorexic. We tried. <laughs> Um, but I, you know, for me, it was, um, for me, one of the healing pieces of this was, I just don't think about what I eat anymore. And I, I cannot, I cannot care about what I eat. And that means I try and eat healthy, but sometimes I just eat like crap. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, my first rule to myself was to not have rules, was to just do my best to let myself feel full, to let myself um, have more of something than I wanted. I, I follow a lot closely with, uh, I think, intuitive eating. And what the outcome of that has been is that for most, for the most part, I don't end up um, eating things. I, for the most part, don't end up um, going down that rabbit hole of like, I can't stop eating. I actually don't really do that at all anymore, unless it's like a total nervous, I've, you know, I'm trying to find grounding through it. But I mean, I mean, how like for you, so you, yeah. How did you like you stopped drinking? Well, I, um, I, gosh, it was um, sixteen years ago. Um, I actually had specialized treatment for it, yeah. and I remember thinking, if this doesn't work, you know, what's yeah. going to work? And I had a show. Actually, it was. It must have been longer than fifteen years. When twenty years ago, I had. I had a show. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be able to do this show because, you know, the throat, the throwing up. And there was this something in my head which just said, and I'd let go of alcohol by that then. It's like, you can. And how can I let go of um, the of the throwing up? So yeah. for that first year or two years, which was bliss. And then I had I had several years of throwing up once a year. Yeah, I would do, you know, what my, my little yeah. bit once a year. And then I had somebody who came into my life who said, I really want you to mentor me. I want you to mentor me through the eight step program. I'm yeah. a polemic. I throw up every two to three months. And I remember thinking, well, shit, I still throw up once a year. So I yeah. never told them they know now. And that was a gift because I just thought, right, you know, I have to I have to let go. So, yeah. you know, I haven't thrown up um for about four or five years sometimes and so what I've had to learn to do is to hold on to the binge do you know what I mean that's right I do because that's that's, the first rule yeah Yeah. like you don't you just can't throw it up yeah like yeah. it's gonna, you're gonna suffer if you bend. Exactly. You're gonna have to hold all exactly. that. Exactly. And the terror, I think there still is the terror of being obese or whatever that I know yeah. that because I still have that terror. I mean, during lockdown, that's how privileged I am. During lockdown, my only fear was, oh my God, I'm gonna put on weight. Yeah. That was, I that, know. Was, that was my only that was my only fear. And, yeah. I, and, and so if that's my only fear, then I'm pretty, I'm pretty okay. privileged. But, yeah. you know, I have to be I have to be abstinent. And sometimes I get once I was into seaweed, I can get into raw cashew nuts. But I just want to come back to this thing of leaving the body, because for me, it is about coming home to the body. And mm-hmm. where did that begin? And, you know, for me, the first thing I did with leaving my body was sniffing shoe conditioner. OK. That was it. Shoe conditioner. Evo stick was a very British. I think Did that it was, was like as a like an inhalant. Yeah, you put okay. it on a cloth and you sniff it, and it was a bit really? like playing Space Invaders in your head. Huh. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was my 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 first yeah. shoplifting. Shoplifting. Yeah, yeah I used to do that too. Addictive tendencies and, yeah. and behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. So just kind of thinking, you know, there are people um, listening here all genders listening what would you be saying to them somebody who is perhaps struggling 
with alcohol, struggling with food, with addictive behaviors, what would you be saying to them? I think the first thing is that I, the way that I always look at it is the thing that we don't want is the way is the thing that we need. And I, I just, I had depression from a pretty young age and, you know, all like lots of issues and the things that I never wanted, um, were, were the things that ended up, uh, they are, they are our biggest gifts. I don't know how else to say it other than that. And that there's so much waste in that space of, of, of trying to push it away and resist it instead of inviting it in and asking it to tell you what you need to know. And I think that when you can do that with addiction, you know, I, I am constantly because of what my job is now thrown into situations where I just want to resist it. I don't want to do it. I don't like, it just is this now all like literally every day, all day is like this now another thing. And I have to come back constantly to what is this thing that I don't want here to show me. And so that is the way that I look at it, which is just invite it in and start to learn how to work with it and what you can learn from it. Thanks. That's really helpful. And I think one of the things that um, comes up for me working in in the same field and definitely doing one-to-one client work or even with group work, that part of the issue that people are dealing with is the dysfunction in the family. And, mm-hmm. and you know, how do we come to peace with our family? I think if I can ask the permission what was it like for you as a child? What was your family dysfunction? Oh, um, I mean, my dad had been um, abused by his mom. She had been, you know, what I know of is that she had been sold uh, into prostitution after uh, the Great Depression and then by her father. And then she had, you know, my own father had been abused, uh, physically abused, mentally abused significantly. Uh, and then, uh, was also gay, like knew he was gay from a very young age and then grew up in the forties, fifties, sixties and seventies and eighties, you know, uh, hiding that identity. Um, and then he was just done. He wanted to be, he wanted to be free and he was a great father, but like he brought all of that with him, you know, and then he brought, um, his own, you know, his own to the mix and, um, he was just checked out. You know, I think there was the, he did not perpetuate violence and I am so grateful to him for breaking the cycles that he broke. Um, but he did bring with him, um, you know, like the psychological stuff and the unhealed stuff of, of, you know, that I picked right up. And, you know, my mom is the most optimistic person you can ever imagine. Um, you know, and in her own family history, I'm less aware of, but I, I know, you know, with, with, with her personally, what she came into this world with was uh, a pretty broken body. And she was in a full body cast for the first few years of her life. And, um, you know, just, uh, I think between her and my father, my parents are just, I love them both dearly. I don't talk to my dad anymore, but I love him dearly. And I appreciate, you know, his path and my mom is, you know, my, she's my person. Um, I think what I picked up was just, um, God, I mean, self-hatred from the earliest, you know, my earliest memories are just not belonging. I never belonged, you know, and I think this is, to me, I feel like some of these things are just so universal, but I just, I just knew I didn't belong in my nuclear family and my extended family in the schools I went to and the friendship groups I was part of, I was always out. And so I think, you know, unlovable, unworthy, you know, doesn't fit in and, um, and invisible, you know? And so I, I could go on, but. Mm. Can I ask you a bit more and, and about your your father? As you say that you don't speak to him anymore, and we know, like, definitely in the twelve step program, there is this whole thing about making amends. And even if we're not in communication with our parents, to work towards that. Yeah. What, what's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, like in two thousand sixteen, I just I remember being in my therapist's office. 
And we tried to go there. And the wall of hate and anger was so thick that we could feel it. Like she couldn't get past it. And then I had like an energy healing and I had, I mean, I had all like, I, I had an energy healer, a past life regressor, a, uh, what do they call that? A psychic. Um, so I had all of these things and I, I, it was just present in all, in every encounter I had with anybody else, there was black snake, black wall, black, you know, and I, I, I think that, um, I just would go through periods of time in my life where I had no boundaries with my father, where I just, I mean, that was my, that was my relationship. That was the one that just consistently broke me and over and over again. And I got to a place in 2016 where I was just, um, I have like a Medusa on my leg. I got into this very, like, it was just this very clear period of time where I hated him and I hated men and I hated, um, I hated, you know, and I needed to have that period of time. And what dissolved um, from that, what that transmuted into was, uh, I think, a place where I, and I have had many conversations that I can't have with him. I can't have the conversation with him because he doesn't have boundaries. And so whenever we have tried to talk, he wants to go into things that I have, I have no interest in going into anymore. And so I've had to cut off communication because I made my choices, what relationships I engage in and which one might, which ones I don't. And for me, it is having a profound love and a profound forgiveness and being able to see his pain and his wounds. Um, but also knowing that I don't have to subject myself um, to, you know, the, the ongoing dysfunction there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, for me, I practice, I, I, I you know, I, I practice a lot of different traditions. And I think one of one of the, the tools I, I love is metaphysical text, of course, in miracles. I mean, it, you know, I, to me, it's just, I understand there is no there is only what I perceive and there is only like for me, like the forgiveness piece of this is the thing I, my forgiveness is, is my, is everything like my ability to love uh, everybody. Um, it's just the, the thing. I mean, I, I found that quite moving. I, you know, from my own experience, just hatred was, was, was part of my, part of my malady. Actually, yeah. That was one of the ways I left my body. I, I, I I hated my biological mother with an vengeance, yeah. and hence I hated myself. Yes. And it and it's it's interesting because she was um, completely shut out of my physical life, not in my mental life. This was the thing: shut out of my physical life, but not in my mental life. And you know, this was somebody who had you know thrown knives at me. I mean, she was taken to court. Okay, so I don't need to go into detail, but she was, she was, she was, she was taken to court. And, but because of this whole, not, not just in, in the rooms of 12 steps, but, you know, as a Buddhist practitioner, forgiveness. And I really thought that actually making peace with my biological mother was, I had to be in physical relationship with her. Yeah. I tried that and actually, God, no. And actually she's made it clear she doesn't want anything to do with two, two, two of her kids. But for me, Part, what it was actually me going into physical relationship with her was a healing for me. And now I, I, I think well of her. I really wish it's, it's, that's what's happened that this mental relationship has evaporated. It's so much pure. I can send love to her, but there's just absolutely no way she can be in my life. It's, it's just with the boundaries. It's just, just no way. So I think that's really important for people who are who are listening. Sometimes we can rush in and think we need to bring these people in our lives who have done great harm to us. You that's know? right. And I, I love Charlotte Castle's book. Have you ever read Many Roads, One Journey? No, I haven't read that that book yet. Yeah. She wrote it in the 90s. It's It's extremely progressive. And she, in it, I talk about forgiveness in my book and I talk about amends in my book. And I think a really important piece of this as well is what we don't talk about is also one of the things that I think I tend to over index on is, um, is not, is not actually allowing myself, um, to, to seek, to seek amends from others or to, 
be righteous in the areas where I've been harmed. Not, you know, I think we run into a lot in recovery of how are you going to make this up? Because we have this idea that, you know, it's, it's not just personal responsibility and personal accountability. It's also an assumption that you were the one that, you know, made all the messes instead of really looking at like the systematic ways that, that we've been hurt and, and also just claiming that space where, where we're owed apologies. And I think it's a, I don't think, I think it's, I don't think it's humble to just immediately fall prostrate. I think in order to have, and this is just my own personal belief in this, in order for me to have actual true and authentic humility, I had to go down the path of, of first, you know, <laughs> acquiring a right to exist and a right to, to certain experiences before I could, before I could, you know, start shaving away the areas that, that, um, that stand in the way between me and, and peace. I don't know if that makes sense. I feel like sometimes when I read a, a Buddhist book, I'm just immediately, it's just like you go to zero, right? And I think that sometimes people are in such deficit that they have to build, they have to create some more human quality before they can take themselves to zero. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, as, as somebody who is a Buddhist, that's how I got my recovery in the ruins of Buddhism. And it was because of this practice of loving kindness yeah. that one had to learn to love themselves. And it was yeah. through that practice I really realized I hated myself. And what I loved about that practice was it was separated out. I, there was absolutely no way I could give the warmth and what give kindness to myself that's a bit of an oxymoron but I had to learn to give kindness to to friends to neutral and to the enemy of the mind and it really it it, it began to transform form my life and I think you know you too have it been influenced by things like kundalini yoga you know you too have been I mean it'd be really great to hear a bit of how certain spiritual traditions have impacted your recovery yeah, I think uh, it's important to say uh, Hinduism has been a huge part of, uh, I mean, it just made sense to me and it has for a really long time. I was very, I was really young when I came to contact with yoga, uh, with, with Hare Krishnas actually, and then with yoga. Um, and it's always just been a, a, an interest uh, and a, it just has always felt like home. And I think that that has been my gateway into, you know, because it was a physical practice at first that then became, that then led me to um, to teachers like Azita Nahai, um, or, uh, to, to teachers like Stephanie Snyder, who's, you know, both of which are, are sober and in recovery. Um, and I think when it comes to like actual pure, like it, it's not, I think it's for me, the influences have been Bhagavad Gita, um, and like Ramayana and like, the Upanishads, I make those make sense to me. There are books that like absolutely help me to make sense of the world and how to be. I have a lot of uh, reverence for Hanuman. Um, I've always just you know believed in this. You know, there's that that um, just been on the verge of tears. This whole conversation. Um, there's that that Hanuman quote. You know, to to Ram. Hanuman says to Ram. Um, when I forget who I am, I serve you. And when I remember uh, who I am, I am you. And so, excuse me. Um, yeah, I think that has been like my first. And, and then I also got really into figuring out Jesus. <laughs> there was a period of time in my recovery where I went to an evangelical church, not because I was like, this is it, but because I was like, what is up with Jesus? I have to understand um, and so I spent a lot of time trying to pull apart, you know, um, Gnosticism or Gnostic, the, you know, the Gnostic Gospels and Mary Magdalene, uh, Megan Watterson has been a huge influence. Um, and I think I also, I, I have, I mean, Pema Chodron and, uh, is one of my, you know, so I guess, um, Pema Chodron and the Bodhisattva, you know, Shanti Deva, and I think that's Mahayana. Um, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, um, Shanti Davis teachings, Pema Chodron's, um, I think um, I have been deeply meaningful. I, I kind of am always reading through um, Pema Chodron's translation of uh, Bodhisattva, uh, the Bodhisattva way. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, there, to me, there is, there is only one thing and it is 
um, it is, it is, uh, finding God in everything. And I don't care how I get there. Um, I am, you know, I am devout and devoted. Um, let's just pause. I just, just, let's just pause there and just take that in and just, just for a moment of pause. And, and I and I want to just reflect back to you that, yeah, the work that you do is bodhisattva work, that mm. actually, you know, that your recovery just wasn't for you, that you you saw something and you wanted to share that with others. That's what you've done. It is very much bodhisattva work. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and just coming back, you know, coming back to your your book, a, a big shout out, quit, quit like a quit like a woman I should ask you actually why the title but let before I get to why the title it was you know just reading that book and then just reading some of the escapades and that thing or just you know some of the sex that we had the things that we do and it just reminded me I can remember being in a car with a friend uh, there was we we're going out clubbing there was like four or five of us in a car and somebody said you know gosh, I haven't, you know, I've hardly ever slept with anybody, you know, maybe one person in a year. And I was like, someone's like, one in a year? Forget it. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't even count how many people in a year. And then several years later, I thought, gosh, I haven't hardly slept with anybody. And it was because I hadn't drank alcohol. I have had, I know. And I don't want to scare people off from sobriety, but it's true. I mean, I just, I was actually talking to my sober friend last night and all, I haven't had sex in five years. And I was like, like, I, you know, honestly, when I like pulled together the last 10 years, you know, and, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, really, it, it does. It, it, what we should say is it has an impact on that, that sexual. On your, it has an impact on your judiciousness and on your yeah. ability to decide what you want to do and engage yeah. in. But, yeah. but sex is, I have found it's better. Um, it is, oh yeah, of course it's much connected. better. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't regret, put it this way, that, you know, not being under the influence of intoxicants, I don't regret that's the person right. that I ended up Never. with anymore. You that's know. right. Yeah. That's right. And I have actually walked out. I'm like, I'm about to regret this and I don't want to do this. You have the wherewithal to make those decisions. You know, it's exactly. very different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I named it Quit Like a Woman um, because we couldn't think of another title. It was really like, I think it's really interesting because I've also, one of my closest friends has come out as, as um, uh, agender and I'm very, very, uh, I would say, um, and I, I was part of that process and that witnessing that process of somebody that I love um, and and my own unlearning and learning in that process of 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 gender. And I think I still am obviously I'm very like I'm here for women. And I think it, it is like I, I, I've had to kind of come to the place where I'm very I'm okay saying that without feeling like I'm taking something away from from um you know from non-binary or gender fluid folks. I think like the problem for me is that um not the problem, I think it's um I don't know. I mean, the titles to me, it's to put it succinctly. I, I, it was a, it was, it was all the things that I knew strung together in a way that I had been trying for years to, I had been trying for years to map it together. How does, because I think, and I talk about this in chapter 16, I think when I was starting to talk about racism and, and, and when people had come to expect me to be Holly, the sobriety person, um, especially well, white people, there was just a, a pushback of, well, racism has nothing to do with sobriety, stick to sobriety. And I have always, I came into this with like almost too much, you know, like pieces here and there. And I couldn't put the words to it of why it all mattered and why we can tie it all back down to addiction and why sobriety is such a, is so important for where we're heading and where we have to head. And this is exactly like the times right now we cannot afford to be out of our bodies. We cannot afford to be numbing consistently in this society. This is why we are here. We are complacent and we are, you know, we're sick. And I think I just feel so called, I think, more than anything to talk about why sobriety is necessary and why everybody eventually, I believe, will make choices to remain present and to mm. 
to, to, you know, really there is Jean Swallows wrote this book. Um, it was called Sober Dykes and Our Friends. Um, I can't remember what the header, like the header title is, but she talks about this, this self oppression and the oppressions that are done to us. And then the oppressions we do to ourselves. And I think for me, the book was really meant to, I can talk about it from a feminist perspective. I can own that space. I can own how that experience has affected me. I can own what it's like to be a woman trying to quit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can, I can speak about it from that lens. I think on the other hand, I'm also, I guess, saying, I, I feel like it's really what I always see people saying is you can read it too, if you're a man, you know, and I'm just like, anybody can read it. You know, it's like, <laughs> just cause it might be centered on one identity doesn't mean it's, gendered you know and so anyway but um yeah I mean it's uh, of course you know when you when you know people say what's race got to do with with uh sobriety I mean it happens in the rooms of 12 steps and it has everything to do with it because it's it trauma it's everything trauma and I you to say actually you know myself I I identify as gender fluid and uh, gender fluid and at times I'm female appearing at times I'm more male appearing and um, and for me definitely with that 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 I had gender dysphoria as a young person but then you know nobody really understood that nobody really really got that you know so it's yeah uh, so many things I mean the, the reality is and I like what Dr. Gabor Mate says, it says that, you know, everybody experiences trauma, okay? But not everybody who experiences trauma has addictions, but everybody who has addictions has trauma. And I think that's really important. But just, you know, just we're we're running out of of your precious time. I really appreciate you doing this interview for our community. What's something that you would like to leave my community with? It's, It's like, you know, if you could change the world or what is it that you would love to leave my community with? If I could change the world, what would I do? Is that what you mean? Or yeah. mm-hmm. what would you, there were two questions in that. So sorry. So let, let's have both. <laughs> if, you could, if you could change the world, what would you do? And what do you want to leave oh, yeah. my listeners with? Yeah. I think, um, I mean, love is, one of my friends says, love is the, love is the end, love is the, um, is the way the story ends. Mm-hmm. And I think when I think of that, I think especially in the recovery community, one of the most beautiful things that I have always appreciated about you and then also like the Buddhist recovery network and, and Buddhist approaches mm-hmm. is how inclusive and accepting they are. And I think in recovery, um, there is uh, there is a way for everybody to exist. And I think there's also a way for everyone to exist and also be able to question. And I think one of the things is we assume questioning is 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 dangerous or or uh, or um, not productive, and I think the the thing that will empower us addiction is a response to really like to to oppression to, to all all sorts of different types of experiences, and I think as we're coming into this, we have to be able to question, we have to be able to hold space to for each other, and we have to do that with an ethic of love. And so I think, I think that is the piece. I think that's what you were looking for. And I think for me, that is, to me, I think the way that we lead within this community is the way that I, I, I think we're all, I think the, I think the recovery community is, 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 I mean, everyone I look up to is, is in recovery. Everyone, all my teachers are, you know, or they're at the, or they're staying or, you know, I, I just think that there is, um, there's just such tremendous power. in in this community and it can be harnessed for so much thank you anything else you'd like to say i just love you and this has been really special yeah yeah it's been good love you too and uh yeah it has been great yeah to have this opportunity yeah Yeah. to share to share recovery to to share the bodhisattva vow that's right yeah yeah yeah, we're, you know, that the the story of the thousand armed Avalokiteshvara and we are one of the arms of Avalokiteshvara. Mm. You know, we need many, many arms. And I won't say the whole story, but part of the, the story is, is that uh, Avalokiteshvara, when when he exploded or when they, because Avalokiteshvara is, is non, non-binary, right? yeah. when they exploded into uh, a million pieces and was put together with 11 heads and, and a thousand arms, 
Avlika Teshra could still see that that wasn't enough. And through, through that, a tear dropped from their eye and green Tara was born. Really? With the work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So, and green Tara, I actually drew her card last night. Um, wow. But it, can you tell me what green Tara is? Is she peace? Well, green... Yeah, Green Tara um, represents uh, many things, but compassion, yeah, peace, yeah, stepping down into the world. So you That's know, right. it's it's also stepping down into the world to help all beings. Yeah, you're so wise. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bimla Sara president of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the Academy free resources on our website, and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace. Mm-hmm.